This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamon between Sokah and Ezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well-advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with a keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what I have I done, said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give, you, give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sherem road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. 
David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. This is a story about God providing an unexpected champion for his fearful and defeated people. A champion who comes and conquers in weakness. And again, in the beginning of our story, we meet the Philistines, who are just a relentless enemy. No matter how often the armies of Israel defeat these guys, they somehow reassemble themselves and come at Israel again and again. This is a highly militarized, um, advanced society, and they are extremely aggressive. And now they're facing Israel's armies on Israel's western border, where the plains meet the mountains. And these two armies are in a deadlock. Israel prefers to stay in the safety of the hills where they can look down on the enemy. The Philistines would like Israel to come and fight them in the plains where they have the technological advantage. But both armies are facing off in this deadlock. But the Philistines have a weapon, a super weapon, the Israelites lack. A human super weapon named Goliath. Goliath is a huge man. He's gigantic, over nine feet tall probably. And in the Bible, by the way, there are no good giants. There are not really many good tall people either. And again and again, the people of God have to face off against these enormous people who are standing in the way of them claiming the promises of God. When Israel crossed the Red Sea and marched through the wilderness and stood on the edge of the promised land, it was fear of the giants in their path that kept them from entering. These people who were looking down on them like they were grasshoppers. And because of Israel's unbelief and unwillingness to go and fight those giants, they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And now another giant has arisen who was threatening Israel's security in the land that God has given them. He's not just a huge guy. He has very unusual armor. The description we have, this is the lengthiest description of military hardware in the Bible, is actually not typical of how we know from archaeology and inscriptions how the Philistines armored themselves. They have taken all their technology, all their engineering, and all their craftsmen to clothe and encase this one hero in as much armor and weaponry as he could possibly bear. He's wearing a coat of metal scales that weigh over 125 pounds. He's got these huge weapons in his hand and on his back. What the Philistines have built, in fact, is a human tank, a walking arsenal. And he's described as their champion. Literally, the Hebrew word refers to the man between. Goliath is the man between the armies. And he clanks forward into no man's land and stands before the appalled Israelite army. And he roars forth a challenge to single combat. 
look, instead of all this unnecessary bloodshed of these two armies clashing together, here's what we're going to do. I am the champion for the Philistines, and I invite you, Saul's servants, to send forward anyone, your largest, strongest, bravest man. And whoever wins, wins the battle. And I'm sure what was going on in the mind of the Philistines was this. Behind and above human forces fighting, the gods are at war. And so here we are on the boundary between the hills and the plains, the borderline of what they thought of as the boundaries of the different divinities. And we're going to see which god is more powerful here on the borderlands. And whichever god gives victory, we know any further fighting is futile, and that is the side that has won the battle. Well, there's dead silence from the Israelite army. There's no eager soldier leaping forward to do battle. And Goliath waits, and then he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. It's an insult. He's bringing shame and disgrace upon the enemy. He's spitting upon them verbally. Now, the Israelites do have one very tall man in their midst, someone who stands head and shoulders above the rest, a man, in fact, that they have joyfully chosen years ago to defend them from enemies just like the Philistines and Goliath. And this man, of course, is King Saul. Saul and his son Jonathan have the only iron weaponry in the entire army filled with farmers and peasants, and probably the only armor. And Saul had once been a man of faith, and years ago the Spirit of God had rushed upon him, and he had led the Israelites into courageous battle against Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. But now, due to Saul's rebellion against God, the Spirit has abandoned him. He does not have supernatural help. And we're told that Saul and all the Israelites were trembling with fear. Goliath is a form of psychological warfare, visually and verbally. He is dominating the Israelite ranks. And this warfare is totally effective. For 40 days, morning and evening, like clockwork, Goliath steps forward and belches his blasphemous challenge to the Israelite ranks to be met with nothing but silence. And then in verse 12, we have a scene change. From the front lines of battle, we move 14 miles east to the very small town of Bethlehem. And we'd been there in chapter 16. Samuel the prophet had secretly anointed David, the youngest son of Jesse, the king. And then David had been summoned to minister to Saul to play the lyre and soothe the mind of the tormented king. David has been shuttling back and forth between Saul's court and his father's flock, and now his his own father, Jesse, sends him to the front lines with the most ordinary list of provisions. Some grain, some bread, some cheeses, ordinary peasants. David gets up early in the morning and heads the 14 miles west. David doesn't belong on the front lines, but this day he so happens to be there. He walks all day, and he just happens to arrive as Goliath steps on stage for the 7 p.m. showing. And David is horrified to see this monster and to hear the way he's talking. It might well have been the first time in David's life 
that he'd heard this kind of language and heard the name of God being blasphemed. Whoa, oh my goodness, what on earth is going on? He's hearing these insults. He's looking to the left and the right and seeing the reaction of the Israelite army. And when Goliath is done and steps back to the lines, everyone starts talking at once over each other, trying to explain to the newcomer what's going on. And the reward, the lavish reward that Saul is offering to anyone brave enough and strong enough to kill this hulking brute. A large fortune, his daughter in marriage, tax-free status. And this reward grows and grows, but it's still unclaimed after 40 days. And then in verse 26, David speaks his first recorded words in the Bible. And he asks the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Up till now, God has not been mentioned in this chapter. God only appears through David's words. The Israelites have not been thinking of God, and Saul has not been thinking of God. As the covenant king of the people, anointed by the prophet of the Lord, he should have been motivating the people of Israel and directing their eyes to the power and faithfulness of God. But instead, Saul is resorting to rewards and bonuses to try to get anyone to fight the enormous Goliath. Saul is a king without the spirit. And without the spirit of God, Saul can only perceive fleshly realities. Saul's mind and Israel's mind is totally in the grip of Philistine propaganda. They're passive and responding to what Goliath is and what Goliath is saying. And then David shows up. And Eugene Peterson says, David enters the Valley of Elah with a God-dominated, not a Goliath-dominated imagination. And David begins to speak, and it's his words that reframe the whole situation. David is a man on whom the Spirit of God rests. The Spirit of God rushed upon him and will remain with him for his entire life. And because David is the one man with the Spirit of God on the battlefield, he sees, he hears, and he speaks utterly differently than anyone else in the story. And not everyone is happy with this. David's oldest brother, Eliab, hears David speaking, and he burns with anger. He lashes out against his little brother when he hears these words. He denounces him as a conceited little brat. I know the wickedness of your heart. You just showed up to watch the battle. How dare you come up here and speak this way? It's a defensive reaction coming from shame. Eliab and the whole Israelite army has been shamed twice a day for 40 days. And here David shows up and his faith-filled words are exposing the cowardice of his older brother. Eliab, the oldest brother we know from chapter 16, was a big guy. And he looked so much like a king, Samuel was ready to anoint him then and there. But he does not have the heart of a king 
which only God can see and now is being revealed. And like cowardly people so often do, Eliab is going on the attack to protect himself. You know, words of faith are often perceived as a threat by those who are controlled by fear. Words of faith are often perceived as a threat by those who are controlled by fear. And it's so telling that before David can step forth against Goliath, which actually happens quite late in this long chapter, before David fights the giant, he must first overcome the unbelief of God's own people. And David turns from his brother and continues speaking in the same way. Well, Saul hears about this. This is very unusual language. No one else in the Israelite army is talking in the same fired-up way as David is, and so he sends for the young man. A young man he's very familiar with, the young man who stood before him many times playing his instrument, but now David comes in a completely different way. Look, your majesty, David says, politely but firmly, no one should lose heart on account of this Philistine. You can't speak directly to the king, but David is really saying, Saul, you shouldn't be losing heart on account of this pagan. It's a polite rebuke. I'm going to go and fight him. It's a grim situation, and they're grim words, but Saul can't but suppress a smile at the young man's audacity. David means well, of course, but this is a misguided amateur, and he's intruding on the world of hardened professionals who know what true battle is. And David needs his temperature taken down a little. He needs his enthusiasm to be, look here, Saul says, and he means it kindly. He's fond of the young man. Look here. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And this is a guy who's been a man of war from his youth, perhaps even specially bred for this kind of warfare. Saul is not a foolish man. Saul has the kind of wisdom that has accounted for everything, everything except for God. And Saul is full of objections and obstacles and barriers and precautions against what he perceives as the reckless zeal of David. But David is not lost for words. He says, look, I'm not just a pretty boy. I'm not just an amateur. My faith has been forged in battle. And many's the time where a lion or a bear has come against one of the sheep or lambs from my father's flock. And I went after that thing. And if it didn't drop that poor animal immediately, I would grab it by the hair and club it to death. And when it comes down to it, I see this Goliath as just another of the same breed, another large, hairy predator threatening. And David has the heart of a true shepherd, a true king, and he can't just stand back in fear when the sheep are being threatened. It's a faith that King Saul no longer possesses, but he can't help but be stirred by the young man's words. Go, he says, and adds piously, may the Lord be with you. But wait, before you do, I want to give you the best possible odds against this horrifying warrior. Look, here's my own armor. Surely you're going to want to put this on. 
Saul's logic is still dominated by Goliath. If the giant has armor, obviously we need armor. It stands to reason, doesn't it? And in Saul's mind, it makes total sense. And he personally dresses David in his armor. And as we step back, we can see this hidden irony here. Here is Saul unwittingly clothing God's truly anointed one in the full regalia of kingship. But David is ill at ease. He's not comfortable, weighed down by all this metal, and politely, he declines. He never needed armor and weapons. When he was fighting the bear and the lion, God helped him, and it doesn't feel right to put it on now. You know, the Philistines have engineered this metal-encased fighting machine, and they've taken the best technology, and they were far more advanced than Israel, and the most skilled craftsmen, of which Israel was mostly lacking, and they have engineered this fighting beast. But by contrast, and it's Robert Bergen who points this out, David chooses a stick and stones, weapons shaped only by God, not by human And with his staff in his hand, David walks into the barren no-man's land in full view of both armies at the bottom of the valley. And he goes to the wadi, the dry creek bed, and begins weighing stones in his hand. These are not pebbles, because David doesn't have a children's toy with him. Rocks the size of his fist are what he's looking for. Rocks that can be slung by an expert slinger, at over 100 miles per hour with deadly accuracy. Five rocks to be safe. It's his first giant after all, and he's not quite sure how thick his bone is. And he takes these five stones, and he hides them in his pouch, and he steps over the creek to the Philistine lines. And Goliath lumbers forward, peering down at the warrior that Israel has selected as their champion at last after six weeks. When he realizes that it's only an apple-cheeked youth, Goliath is, he's personally insulted. There's going to be no honor, no glory for him in displaying the battered corpse of a mere boy. This is barely worth his time. And he begins to curse David. He invites him, step forward. I'll feed you to the vultures and to the beasts. Well, David has been reframing the contest for everyone else, and now it's time to reframe the situation for Goliath. Let's read those verses in 45 to 47 again. David's speech. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. David's been very observant of Goliath's weaponry. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David is filled with the holy zeal for the honor and reputation of God. It's not David's honor that's at stake, and ultimately it's not even Israel's honor that's at stake. Goliath has poked his fingers in God's eye, and therefore he deserves death. And David's going to be the one who deals with him. Here's what's going to happen. Let me just lay out the next five minutes for you, Goliath. The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And this very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds 
and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Something is about to happen in full view of the public. And what everyone on both sides is fully expecting to be a public humiliation of Israel is actually going to be an occasion for the glory of God to be revealed. This is a revelatory event. And David is thinking of the honor of God going out among the nations. And all those gathered here, Philistine and Israel, will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Our national security does not rest in military technology, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Enough words. It's time for action. And Goliath clanks forward for hand-to-hand combat, his shield-bearer keeping pace in front of him. But David is faster. The best of his five stones in the sling, a few whirls over his head. He releases one of the leather cords, and the stone flies straight and true with such force that it shatters the frontal bone of Goliath's cranium. And for a moment, the huge man stands swaying. And then, weighed down by 125 pounds of metal armor, he topples forward on his face, just like the Philistine idol Dagon before the ark all those years ago. And in the dead silence, the shepherd boy sprints forward. He drags Goliath's massive sword out of its scabbard, lifts it over his head, and severs his neck. And this is all happening in the middle of the valley, and it's hard for the two sides to know what's going on as they lean forward. But then David holds the severed, bloody head aloft, and there's no mistaking what's happened. The Philistines aren't going to wait around to be slaves to Israel. They break and they run as the elated Israelite army rises with a shout and goes after them in hot pursuit. This is a story of two champions, two men between the armies, meeting in single combat. You know, time and again down the centuries, the people of God have faced enemies too large, too strong, and too well-armored for them. One giant, one Goliath is dealt with, and a generation later, another one rises to take his place. And of course, behind all these giants is a much larger and more threatening monster, the triple-headed beast of sin, Satan, and death. And we're all helpless against them, as we've been reminded of these last few weeks. And they roar their blasphemous challenge across the valley, as we tremble in shame and fear. And the only future we can see is slavery. But it turns out that this is not our personal Goliath, just like Goliath was not David's personal Goliath. This is not just an enemy of the people of God. This is an enemy of the living God himself. And God is not sitting back unconcerned as we're victimized by this hulking monster. God's own anger and zeal are roused because when we're attacked, as his people, God 
himself is being attacked. The champion the people have chosen fails them. Saul is a great disappointment. And so God raises up a man after his own heart and sends him to the front lines to rescue. And centuries later, God is going to send Jesus from Bethlehem, the root of Jesse, the son of David, the true anointed one. And this Jesus is the true shepherd, the good shepherd who interposes his own life for his helpless sheep. And the insults against God's people and the blasphemies against God he hears from sin and Satan and death fill Jesus with righteous anger. And zeal for his father's house consumes him. Clothed with the spirit of God, Christ steps forward to be the man between the armies. And he doesn't come with worldly weapons. He rejects the armor of the giant. Legions of angels are at his summons. He refuses them. And Jesus goes forward in weakness, not just unarmed, but naked. He's put on display in that no man's land between God's people and God's enemies, and he's exposed as a thing of shame. But it turns out the secret king is conquering in weakness, not in human power, but in divine weakness. He's come in the name of the living God, the Lord of hosts, and he's come to fulfill the ancient promise to crush the head of the metal-scaled serpent. The cross was an enemy, was a weapon of the enemy, an instrument of cruelty and torture that Satan was pushing Jesus towards as a way to defeat him. But just as Goliath's head in the end, is cut off by his own sword. The wooden cross of Christ turns about out to be the huge two-handed weapon that Christ uses to hack off the head of the enemy. You are not David. You are hiding behind your shield, sweating, shaking, and frightened. But when David holds the head aloft, the army of Israel rises with a shout of faith, a mighty yell as they charge down the hill toward the fleeing enemy, cutting down the Philistines as they run. And in a moment, because of what the champion has done, their fear turns to faith, and they own their true identity as the army of the living God. And we too are the army of the living God, not called to fight our own personal enemies, but recognizing that there is evil in our Father's world. Sin, Satan, death. There is a serpent in the garden. But though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And when with faith filled with the Spirit, our own eyes perceive Jesus risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God with a train of captives behind him, sitting on the throne over the universe, our own faith and courage ought to rise as well. 
Not because we're strong and powerful and can handle everything. We can't. We are very small and very tiny, but because we belong to Jesus. His trumpet is summoning us to battle. And King Jesus is calling you as his son, his daughter, his soldier, to face sin, to fight it. He's calling you to face Satan and to fight him and defeat him. And he's calling you to face death and fight it and defeat it. Not in our own strength, but in the weakness and nakedness of faith. The word of the gospel, the speech of the living Lord, is redefining and reframing reality for all of us. Our enemies are strong, much too strong for us. What we need is for the living God of Israel's armies to dominate our horizons and not the enemy. And for that, we need great faith. And for that, we need the Holy Spirit of God. And let's bow our heads and pray now and ask that God would grant this gift. Great, awesome, and living God, we confess that we are your people and we belong to you. You know our enemies are far too strong for us. And again and again, we go away defeated and ashamed from our encounters with sin and Satan. And and we're so thankful that Christ has conquered. Lord, may your spirit direct our eyes in faith to him. Seated on the white horse, faithful and true written on his side, the sword of truth coming from his mouth, conquering and to conquer. Our hope is in him. Our victory is his victory. And we ask that his presence here among us now would cause us to rise with a mighty shout to fight the Lord's battles with the Lord's help. In the name of Jesus. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF-Georgia.org. Thanks for listening.